Welcome to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm here with Melissa Odin, an abortion survivor and the founder of the Abortion Survivors Network. And we are actually here in D.C. for the March for Life, which was yesterday in the National Pro-Life Summit. Today put on by Students for Life of America, Live Action, Heritage Foundation, and Alliance Defending Freedom. And so this is a real honor and privilege because Melissa's story, among so many others who are now receiving voices because of what Melissa does through the Abortion Survivors Network, poses a real uh, emotional and ideological challenge to the abortion juggernauts and their cronies and their narrative, which is that women should practice their reproductive health care. But what if that reproductive health care and the choices to choose that reproductive health care fail? Well, the failures of those reproductive health choices are actual human beings who have been wounded through the abortion industry and those who make a significant amount of money on the destruction of life. So we're going to talk about a lot of things about life, about uh, beauty, about the gospel, about truth, about speaking up, and so much of what uh, Melissa does. So we'll be back in just one second. Stay tuned. Welcome to Unaborted. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in today. So as I said, I'm here with Melissa Odin today of the Abortion Survivors Network, and we're here in Washington, D.C. And I just want to highlight her and highlight her ministry and all that she does for life, because what she does and the niche that she's in is incredibly powerful, incredibly emotional. It's hard for me to not break up when I start talking about it. And so I want to give her time to share what she does. So most people are not aware of the fact that, that there are hundreds and thousands of individuals in America that have actually survived abortions. And that happens in different ways. But I want you to talk a little bit first of, of how you got here. What's your story? Um, and then how did you come to terms with that story? When did you find out about what happened and how has God used all of that? So share with us, share with our listeners yeah, what, well, what that journey has been. This is the face of choice. It's so fascinating, right? To live in this culture that talks about abortion as a choice and a woman's right. And to be a woman who survived what the rest of the world would call a failed abortion, right? We like to think this was successful because I'm alive. But right. I mean, our world says this is this is what failure looks like, that a human being survives an abortion. And, you know, for me, it's been a really long journey. I'm, I'll age myself really quickly. I'm so much older than you. I'm 42. It's okay. Um, but I think that's important for kind of that historical context because I survived an abortion not long after Roe versus Wade. And, you know, it's very interesting because I think at that time, people really did not know what was going on. They didn't think this was going to be a big deal. People didn't really know what abortion entailed, right. what it was going to mean for years to come. And even just yesterday, I received an email from a nurse who was working at the hospital that I was born alive at. Yesterday. Just yesterday after the march. This happens a lot with oh me. Oh, my gosh. But she said, Melissa, I loved reading your book because she said it takes me back to that time in 1977 where as a young nurse so many of us were young and new in the field and we had no idea what abortion was we didn't know how it was going to affect our careers wow. how it was going to affect our families and i think that's so important for us to realize that this was this was what was happening so back then my birth mother was a college student Prime time, right? 19 years old, was not married to my biological father. They were actually engaged, I now know, but wow. we're not 1974? married. 1974? 1977. 77. 
yeah, engaged to be married, would have parented me, had they would have married, parented me if they had been given that choice, if we want to use that word, right? But like so many women in that position, my birth mother was not given any choice. And so her, my maternal grandmother, her mother forced the abortion upon her. And again, we know statistically, we know through research that this is the experience of most women. Well over 64% of women have identified feeling pressured or coerced into their abortion. And my birth mother was literally forced. Her, her mother was a prominent nurse, oversaw the education of most of the nurses in the hospital where it took place. Your maternal grandmother was mm-hmm. a nurse. Mm-hmm. Associate Dean of a nursing oh school. Knew the scientific and the biblical basis for when life begins, right? We know this. So much for the Hippocratic Oath. Mm-hmm. But she knew also how to make a forced abortion take place by passing hospital regulations and procedures. And honestly, wow. Seth, it makes me wonder how many times she did that. Oh, gosh. Like, was my birth mother really the first person at that hospital that it happened to? Or was she so comfortable doing it already? Right. The abortionist was a colleague, a close friend of hers. And so they forced the abortion upon my birth mother. And that type of procedure is a saline infusion abortion. The abortion industry themselves admitted long ago that they stopped doing it because too many of us survived. Right. Yep. Not effective enough. Right. So let's find much more effective ways to make sure human beings don't come into this world. And so that type of procedure was meant to poison and scald me to death. Usually the procedure lasts about three days. If the child was fortunate enough, their life was ended within about the first 24 hours. Right. It's one of the most horrific abortions for a child. It is. You know, I've met many women who have said, Melissa, I had that abortion procedure and I felt my child thrashing about in the womb fighting for their life before the womb quieted. And I knew that their life had been ended. And so my birth mother had that forced upon her. And instead of actually lasting three days, my abortion procedure lasted for five. My medical records indicate that they just kept trying over the five-day period to induce her labor. And (laughs) I'm a little stubborn, and I was not budging. And so on that fifth day, they thought, of course, the abortion had been successful. And they finally induced her labor at St. Luke's Hospital in Sioux City, Iowa. And that day, I was accidentally born alive. Isn't that crazy, right, to go accidentally born alive? I actually said this to a group of students recently at a high school. I said, why is it that you have a birthday right? and I have to have the day that I was accidentally born alive? What's the difference between you and me? Right. And there was no answer. Oh, my gosh. Accidentally born alive. What a strange and disturbing inversion of language. Mm-hmm. Like... Someone just said right now at the National Pro-Life Summit, they said everyone, or Matt Burke, former yeah. NFL player, everyone is pro-life as a child. Absolutely. Every eight-year-old is pro-life because you just understand that that's a child. In fact, my, my now two-year-old, but when he was one and a half, I showed him a picture of the highly enhanced prenatal imagery through embryoscopy of the child in the womb in the first trimester. And I said, Cedar, what's this? And he looks up and he says... Maybe everyone starts pro-life and then they get indoctrinated with this just horrible, uh, euphemistic Orwellian language that describes one of the most evil things you could possibly imagine, the killing of a baby. 
as feminism, women's equality, and reproductive health care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, your birthday. Supposed to be born alive. Like accidental every, birthday. Every, every, yeah, exactly. Like, what a strange way to even have to describe your experience. Mm-hmm. So, so then, so continue the story. So, you're born alive. Uh, surprise. Surprise. And then, but you did, you, you don't find, you don't know that until later. Right. right. So what's, so where did God take little Melissa from that point? Yeah. So I'm adopted and my adoptive parents knew that I had survived a failed abortion. The doctors, you know, didn't know for sure that I would continue to live for very long, thought I would suffer from multiple disabilities. And there were even mistakes made in my medical care. So they thought I was going to be blind even because of that. I was delivered alive at two pounds, 14 ounces and suffered from a lot of health issues. So understandably, there were concerns about what my future might look like, but my parents weren't deterred as 99.9% of parents under those circumstances are not, right? Right. (laughs) And so they knew my story and raised me to know Jesus from my younger stage, raised me to know that I was adopted. But I found out my survival story completely by accident when I was 14. Now, did your adoptive parents know? They did. They knew. They knew. And, you know, what I find in my work with survivors and families is that my parents are like so many parents in that position. They didn't know how to tell me. They didn't know when to tell me. You know, there's not a specific age where we can go, you know, this would be a great idea. Like, let's do that now. They were really afraid of how that was going to change my life. And, you know, I think what I appreciate so much about my mom and dad is they simply raised me to know that my birth parents loved me. Mm enough to give me life and the gift of my family. And that is truly what set the stage for me to, to love them, forgive them, mm-hmm. and to be a part of the pro-life movement wow. before I knew the whole story. And so right. when I was 14, my older sister faced an unplanned pregnancy. She was mm-hmm. in high school. We're both adopted. Okay, wow. And even but though- you have phenomenal adoptive parents. <laughs> my parents are awesome. They were foster parents before that. Wow. And, um, but my sister, even though we knew the truth about the sanctity of life and the gift of adoption, she was like many women in that position, had fears, had anxieties, and was considering every option. And so talk about euphemisms there, right? We know what options that included. <laughs> and when our parents found out that she was facing that unplanned pregnancy and considering even an abortion, they told her my story. Whoa. And that was a game changer, as you can imagine. So that was about 28 years ago. You're older? She's she's older. She's older, okay. So she was 18 already, but hadn't finished high school, just the way our birthdays fit in the calendar year. And she found out the story of my survival. And well, the good news is she carried him, parented him, graduated high school on time, went on and had other children. She was successful with the love and support of a public school. Right, right. Crazy. Wow. (laughs) Um, Our family, our community. I mean, I I look back on that time and I realize not only how strong she was, but just what a gift it was for us to come alongside her. Yeah. yeah. And that's That's what I always try to encourage people is that's what pro-life looks like. Right. Yeah. In word and deed. That's amazing how your, your story had this redemptive quality in your own family by leading to the actual physical salvation of your nephew. Yeah. I mean, wow. And I always want that for other families, right? How many times have, have families probably ended the life of someone within that family unit because they were ashamed, embarrassed, 
It wasn't part of their plan, right? And how many times did they miss out on that redemptive quality that yeah. God was yeah. going to bring forth? Yeah, that's right. It's such an incredible shame. They took the easy route. Yeah. And the beauty in that is that he saved me. Yeah. Even though it was a long struggle to get here, I don't think there is any other way I probably could have found out the story of my survival. Because during an argument with her one night, and it sounds terrible on the face of it, but realized we were a couple of teenage girls who could throw it down, to be perfectly honest. Uh, she said to me one night, she said, you know, at least my biological parents wanted me. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, well, that is absurd. And not in a like, oh, you know, I was unwanted. I was thinking that's absurd because mom and dad have told us all these years were equally loved equally wanted, right? There is no way you are more wanted than me. This is an even playing field. And that's when she realized that she knew something that I didn't. Oh my gosh. And so So that's... you found out in conflict. (laughs) Yeah. And so sat our mother down at the age of 14 and told her about the argument, really was expecting to get in trouble for (laughs) honestly, (laughs) for what was going down. But it was that night that my mom had to tell me that I had survived a failed abortion. And it's... Uh, it's so funny, right? I tell this story a million times. I live in this movement, um, but it still hurts. I, um, back then I didn't want to be this person. I'm not ashamed to be honest with people about that. I did not want to be the girl that survived an abortion. And back then I didn't know that this happened. I didn't know that other people like me existed. And it was an incredibly lonely existence. And I think a part of my struggle was I identified myself as a feminist at the age of 14. Mm -hmm. And hearing that news, I started to have that struggle of who am I and who are they, right? Where is my place in this world anymore? Because I don't know any feminists who would say that what happened to me was wrong. And that inner conflict Really, no one knew how bad my struggle was because I think like many people in that position, I internalized it and I was the people pleasing, want to look good on the outside kind of person. And so developed an eating disorder, alcohol abuse, every poor decision you could imagine. Right. And I think some people, if they caught a little glimpse of it, probably thought, oh, she's just being a funny little teenager. What they didn't realize is that I was in excruciating pain. That runs far deeper. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think part of that process of my healing was my faith. I mean, that was, Mm. that was the chunk. But in the midst of that faith, knowing that God never makes any mistakes, none of us are an accident and really learning to love and forgive my biological parents. You know, you think you love someone (laughs) and then you find out something and you go, wow. What's that love look like? What does it feel like? And for me, forgiveness is not a final destination. I didn't get to wake up one day and go, everything's good. Uh, Life happens. And then you learn to forgive once again. And for me, forgiveness is all about seeing the humanity in another person. That abortionist deserves to be forgiven. Right. My grandmother, my biological parents. And so by the time I went away to college, I was in a pretty good spot, but I went to a public campus that silenced me. Where did you go to college? I went to the University of South Dakota, which interestingly enough, I didn't know at the time that my maternal grandmother was an associate dean at that university when I was there. When you were there? 
And that is the oh. campus where my birth mother became pregnant with me. My. No joke. You didn't know any of this. I didn't know any of that. But it was a very repressive place for well, me sure emotionally, spiritually. And I didn't write it yet. <laughs> my whole life yeah. <laughs> is full of what some people would say would be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, that's a whole nother yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my grandmother was there. And, you know, I oh think it's goodness. an important thing to talk about because I was starting to share my story briefly with people. And yeah, when did you start saying that this is no type of feminism I know? When did you start speaking out? I did a little bit in high school yeah. and even like eighth grade. People will still come back and say, I remember the speech you gave, Melissa, and you left a chair empty in the room when you gave the speech about abortion to wow. give them the visual depiction of what it would have been like if that abortion would have been successful. Right. And to me, that's so cool that all these years later, they still remember the empty chair. Wow. Oh but I went away to college and I would share that with women in particular, right? As we're kind of fellowshipping, getting to know each other. And, and the response was usually something like, eh, I'm sorry that that happened to you, but it doesn't mean you have to talk about it. Oh my gosh. It doesn't, and, you don't fit my narrative. Right. It doesn't mean you have to be pro-life. Yeah. yeah. Goodness. And those things wore on me, right? I was being indoctrinated to shut up. And I can even remember there was a psychology class where I was writing a paper about, and it was, the topic was, how did you become the person that you are? Ding, ding, ding. Wow. Uh, you can imagine what I wrote about. <laughs> and it was a professor that I thought was going to help me get into a PhD program, was just like super supportive of me. Oh boy. And he sent me back the paper and it was all marked up, right? He gave me an A, but it was chock full of comments like, uh, who told you such a terrible lie? You know, this can't be true. Why would anybody say this? Oh my gosh. And it was like another kick in the teeth. And so I went quiet for a period of time thinking all right, it is not safe for me. It is not safe for me to be who I am. It's not safe for me to share my story. And so then this continual process had to evolve for my healing and finding my biological family and finding my medical records. And, you know, in the midst of that, life goes on, right? Married my husband, got my master's degree. Wow. And um, mm. all the while just was really discerning how God was calling me to use my life. And so the biggest piece for me, I think, Seth, for me coming forward in the pro-life movement was that I found feminists for life. <laughs> and I saw Saren yesterday at the March. And um, it's so funny because if people don't, if people don't understand what it's like to be in the sh these shoes, I don't know that it makes sense to them, but to find right. a group of feminists who are pro-life mm. was absolutely right. empowering right. <laughs> for me. Yeah, that's right. And so about that same time, I mean, in God's perfect timing, he allowed me to find my medical records. I'm one of the few survivors who has medical records because wow. the abortion industry does not document. Right. Yeah, of course. Not. <laughs> uh, surprise. Yeah. And so my medical records came through. Oh, I found goodness. out who my biological parents were. And Feminist for Life puts out this flyer saying, hey, we're looking for people to start talking on college campuses. <laughs> Sounds like a good yes. idea. Wow. And so that's, that's how I actually got involved in the pro-life movement that's because, incredible. you know, I thought, why not speak on college campuses? That's yeah. a real great gig, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Peaceful, <laughs> really supportive, open right. to the message. Right. And they don't know what to do with you, right? <laughs> I mean, and, and in many ways, you know, you could actually say that 
you you found the only true and authentic feminists for Absolutely. the first time because you know there is no such thing as I like to say as a pro-choice feminist. And now you you can talk about the different waves of feminism. You and I probably both hate third wave feminism. Absolutely, um, but this uh, this fundamental idea of feminism. The most fundamental idea that would have to undergird feminism for it to be built upon any type of foundation whatsoever would be that women matter. Women's lives matter. Women are equally valuable to men because they're intrinsically valuable. Well, if that's true, then how can you not apply that value to women when they become women? (laughs) And so, I mean, so you, you met true and authentic and consistent feminists, but so, uh, so you were already married when, when this began and when you started going to college campuses. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it gets kind of interesting there because I, I can still remember the first time I spoke publicly. It was actually on Capitol Hill. We did a little briefing with really, really friendly folks, right? Yeah. But I remember thinking, <laughs> I don't know that I can ever do this again. Like, I'm so sick right. to my stomach. Sure. I, uh, I don't think I'm cut out to be a public speaker. Wow. Went home and I found out I was pregnant oh, <laughs> with okay. our oldest wow. daughter, which, I mean, is so cool to me because... Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, our world out there would say, you, as a woman, you can't have it all, that I somehow needed to choose between uh, a career and yep. my child. And right. yeah, that's a whole nother conversation, yeah. right? Female empowerment and feminism means uh, crushing your offspring to pursue career advancement. Right. Very feminist message. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So started to travel the world really in defense wow. of life during my pregnancy with her. Amazing. and. What a, wow, what an additional, like, powerful narrative on top of your already powerful story to be visibly pregnant. Yeah. Sharing that yeah. story. That's and I can still remember what it was like. You know, there were times where, and at that time, I did not know that my birth mother was forced into the abortion. So wow. that didn't come out until years later. And so there were times during that pregnancy that I would, you know, look at everything I was going through and think, my gosh, I know this. I see this happening. I know this child. And my birth mother did the same thing, but yet she tried to end my life. It was a very, very emotional experience to go through. You know, in the grand scheme of things, it ended up being very cathartic. But you have to go through those difficult days where you're going, how could someone do this to me? Yeah. Yeah. Coming to terms with that, I I can't even. even, We were talking earlier about just the knowledge of... um, finding out you're adopted and what that does to your soul, even even though you might have phenomenal adoptive parents like you did. But then to add on top of that, the knowledge that, that your own parents tried to kill you in the womb. I mean, like. And we're coming out with some healing curriculum for survivors. And one of the pieces that we're working on that I think applies to a lot of people is, you know, we know that the research tells us that people and babies in the womb are affected by what their mothers are going through. The stress, yeah. the emotions, right? Yeah. You know, the babies hear things. So think about all of the children in the room being affected by the stress of what that mother is going through. And then think about as survivors, right? Then we're also affected by the trauma of that physical procedure of the abortion, whatever it entails. So our bodies carry the memory. Wait, so it's not reproductive health care? Oh, it's not? That's, isn't it it ironic? Isn't it (laughs) sick, Melissa, that that even the pro-abortion movement acknowledges the significant impact that traumatic experiences can have mm-hmm. on poor people. Mm-hmm. We all acknowledge that. We all see the statistics. We all see the studies that if you're exposed to these things and you go through these things as a child, you know, X percentages, uh, you know, the, the, this the likelihood that you'll encounter these kind of things, like these kind of difficulties, this much more likely for certain types of behavior. Absolutely. Oh, but if, if we try to dismember you in the womb, 
then that's just reproductive health care and will have no effect on, on you. But if you're born and you're exposed to traumatic experiences, we love you. We need to help you deal with the trauma so it doesn't affect your life negatively. I mean, what a weird inversion. Well, and even for women, right? The women who are impacted by abortion, that research study that came out recently out of California, right, where they're trying to say, we did this research study and in this sample, there was not a uh, right. any significant <laughs> depression, anxiety, mental health. Right. <laughs> but yet then in the next article, you'll read that a miscarriage has a huge impact on a woman's mental health. <laughs> right. Yeah. Unreal. Yeah. So your wantedness. If you're wanted, then right. negative, negative experiences that must will impact be where you. That comes but if from. you're unwanted, then no negative traumatic experiences can, can impact you because you're just a blob of tissue. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow. So when did you then launch and begin to recruit and uh, bring together this community of abortion survivors. I started speaking out in 2007, ended up giving up my career as a social worker in about 2010. That was like this process of loosening my grip, right? And when we talk about faith in the Lord, I mean, Mm -hmm. I knew that he was calling me to do something. And I think we all have that one thing that we don't want to give up. And for me, it was my career, to be perfectly honest. And I loosened my grip on my career and let go and really just let myself follow him and everywhere I started to go I would get an email or someone would approach me and whisper I want to and at first I was like what do you know who I am when you're saying that like you know why (laughs) and and then it started to not even surprise me anymore and so I started to just kind of collect people's information over the years and then really in 2012 I went all right Lord it is time and so we launched and you know, at that time, I really had these big plans on what I wanted to do. And survivors were kind of like, hey, I don't really need anything. Hmm. I just want to say thank you. And I'm so grateful to know that I'm not alone. Sure. And so then it was this process of starting to just really watch how it would all unfold. And, wow. you know, what What I appreciate about 2019, even though it was horrible in terms of legislation, yeah, my what it did is unleashed survivors in this world saying no more, right? right. All this, you know, over the last seven years, we were saying we didn't, we don't need anything, but now we do. We want to be healed. We want to find further support and we want to get involved because we're not going to allow this to happen anymore. Well, it's been almost, I think it's been exactly one year, roughly since uh, the um, enemies of human equality in the democratic party decided that they were not even going to allow a vote Mm -hmm. on the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. And I think as of late last year, they vetoed it around 90 times, or they blocked a vote on it around 90 times. Yes, it's close to that. So I'm sure that that had a significant impact on the voices of abortion survivors who were saying, you're not even going to vote to protect me? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what what is that? The radicalization of the Democratic Party when it comes to even fourth trimester abortions and Ralph Northam and how does that all sort of play into maybe how that's helped catapult you guys and, and, and brought more voices? Like <laughs> that's the only time I'll say thank you, Governor Northam. I mean, really, in any other context, that is probably not going to come on my yeah, mouth yeah, yeah. to be But that's exactly what it is. And I think, you know, there's a couple of factors. So one of the factors is with survivors the bulk majority are actually raised in their biological family more so than adoption, just ever so slightly, which you would not expect. Right. But, but when we know the child is not the problem, it does make a lot of sense, right? right? The circumstance they were under is the problem. So 
But then again, it's not always the most positive experience to be raised in a biological family that hasn't healed. But again, that onus is not on the survivor. It's on the biological family or whomever needs to heal. But so a lot of times that secret sits in the biological family or even an adoptive family like mine. But then when we see it being brought into the public square, people are starting to get a little uncomfortable and secrets start coming to light. So there has been a lot of shift I've seen in survivors' families where they're starting to have to bring out some uncomfortable conversations. But the other huge piece really is that survivors have been sitting back and going, okay, maybe like that whole abortion thing, even though I'm pro-life, I'm not really comfortable getting involved, right? Or I'm afraid of losing my career or speaking out. But when it comes to taking away protections for survivors, that's where I absolutely have to say no more. Yeah. I'm going to sacrifice my comfort, my job, my relationships with my family, whatever it is, to now start raising my voice because this is not okay. Well, and the reality is, right, the more they introduce aggressive abortion legislation through all nine, nine months of pregnancy, the greater the likelihood really is that somebody like me is going to come into this world. Right, right. And so it really does feel like an all, all in all out attack on survivors yeah yeah it's unbelievable they're targeting us i mean when when he made those comments like on a public radio station uh, i'll tell you what will happen if a baby is born alive during a botched abortion uh you know we'd make the baby comfortable we'd resuscitate the baby if that's what the mother wanted and then the mother and the doctor would have a conversation sounds sweet i mean yeah well i support like like most pro-abortion radicals they're um Sounds a little bit like Obama. Finally rehearsed in the euphemistic Orwellian language of uh, the enemies of human equality. <laughs> right? I mean, some of these people, honestly, just as a sort of dark aside, would honestly make Hitler look uh, like, uh, you know, a premature teen in terms of, of, of their ability to describe some genocide mm-hmm. as, as, as this great social good and this reproductive health care. Mm-hmm. So, so recently at the March for Life, uh, you released a new video that was shown yesterday from the abortion survivors. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about that video and then tell us some of the maybe opportunities, if you're at liberty to share with that, um, to get that message out to more people. Yeah, 2019 really used, yeah, it, it allowed us to be birthed into a new arena, I guess you could say. So yeah, I was approached by a young woman named Lyric years ago who said, let's do a Super Bowl commercial. Wow. And I was like, uh, that's not ever going <laughs> to happen, right? Let's just be honest. And as 2019 unfolded, we were going, okay, if it's God's will, let's do it, right? Mm-hmm. And if it's to be done, then the doors yeah. will open. And so we started working on this and, you know, dug out survivor stories from the 80s, the 90s. There was a meeting of survivors wow. in the 1990s in Canada, got our hands on some of that, started to dig out all of these stories that have existed over time and put together 14 abortion survivor stories, shot it in black and white in our faces because facing yeah. the choice, right? Let's face yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Look us in the eye when you want to use the word choice and women's rights and reproductive health. And so- wow. We were really pursuing this as a Super Bowl option, and the short story of that would be that it was not allowed to go that far. And so we released it at the march yesterday, and I wow. feel like it was incredibly well received. Yeah. And there are stories that most people don't know. So, right. you know, 
DNA abortions, DNC, instrument abortions, survivors from other parts of the world who survived at home attempts. Oh my gosh. Because that's what they have at their disposal, right? And that's been one of those things over the years. We've always supported survivors of abortion, no matter what that abortion is. Right. But for advocacy purposes, we've always really focused on medical procedures because right. of the legality issue, right? That's what we're trying to butt up against time and time again. Right. But the reality is no matter what type of abortion procedure it is, that's a human being. <laughs> yeah. It's a human being. So that life has meaning and value no matter what. So there are so many different stories wow. tied up in that. People can go to um, facesofchoice.org to okay. see the video. Awesome. It's making the rounds right now. Yeah. We're not done yet. I think we're going to put out more and more videos with yeah. Lyric and Faces of Choice. Amen. Wow. Because that's what the world needs to face, yeah, right? That's right. That's how they've succeeded in 47 right. years of this because right. the victims... Yeah. lose their lives yeah. and they built a narrative where the face of choice that the media is going to show to you and hollywood and the abortion industry and their cronies is that the face of choice is this happy successful mother um let's call her michelle williams for our purpose i'm so um, surprised you said that. <laughs> who, who sacrificed her child on the altar of career well-being for a golden statue and that's the face of choice right i mean very ironic that your video is released so much shortly after her comments at the golden globes because that's the face of choice that the abortion industry wants to put forward look i'm rich i'm successful she literally said these things i have a great marriage i have someone who loves me because i killed my offspring and yet your face and the faces of so many others show that that choice was a violent choice and thank god it wasn't a successful one um, when I was in high school, when I did my senior project on abortion, which catapulted me into speaking out on abortion, I watched Gianna Jessen share her story before the Australian Parliament. And I think that might have been the first full pro-life talk or speech mm -hmm. I had ever heard at 17 or 18 years old. And she had the mic drop moment, you know, where she says, <laughs> if abortion is about women's rights, where will mine? And, and just like with your story, the whole room goes silent. Yeah. Um, and so I've had politicians who come up to me later after I've testified and go, I hope you heard me listening very intently to you today. And they're females, right? Right. And I and I know exactly what it is mm -hmm. that caught their attention because right. I started to kick the leg yeah. out from under the table. That's right. Yeah. And and if you had value when you were born alive, then why didn't you have value in the womb? And then the entire narrative and the entire argument just falls apart. Um, and so seeing Gianna, probably one of the first and earliest abortion survivors in the public sphere, speak out and engage with those who disagree with her in that way. Um, talk a little bit about how you and the Abortion Survivors Network perhaps engage with those either on an organizational level or in your own individual personal life with those who disagree with you, mm -hmm. um, because your narrative and your story is one that cannot be rejected and cannot be silenced and cannot really even be reconciled with abortion arguments. So what does that look like in your personal life or the lives of those in the Abortion Survivors Network in terms of how you engage the culture of death and their cronies? Yeah, Gianna was a game changer for me too. That was the first abortion survivor I ever found out about. And that gave me so much strength and courage. And I love, we love to go places together. We've been in DC together a couple of times and we always kind of joke like, is the town going to blow up? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Having a couple of abortion survivors together, well, we have a good amazing. time. Yeah. But yeah, it is really interesting because our world would say that as women, we have the right to have an abortion, but we didn't have the right to be born in the first place. Wow. I mean, that is so 
so absurd. And my 11-year-old could even trot out that argument to be like, uh, hey. (laughs) So so it's such, yeah, it is such an illogical... Because they often will just crush your story, right? They'll often just say, that's not true. You were were telling me earlier about a story about that. Why why don't you tell us about um, how you and your daughter have engaged with people who are advocates of reproductive health care and how they react when you say, I'm the face of choice. I carried a black and pink sign yesterday. Thanks, Planned Parenthood, for the pink. Um, (laughs) That said, aborted and survived to ask me about my rights as a woman. And my 11-year-old had a sign that said, alive because my mom survived. And so we're carrying our signs, right? Walking in the huge sea of people. And there's a girl on the curb, maybe 20-ish, holding up her sign that says, keep abortion legal. And she looks at our signs and... (laughs) You can see her just kind of, you know, trying to process things. And she starts shaking her head. Just we can see her literally shaking her head. And my 11-year-old and I start nodding our heads yes in return, right? And she starts (laughs) shaking her head no even harder, right? And my 11-year-old shouts out, it's true. And the, the young lady looks at us and she said, give me a name. And so my daughter yells out my name. And the look on her face, you could just see her kind of stunned. I don't think she was expecting a name, right? I think she's just thinking, oh, you guys are making this stuff up. Right. I mean, I'm sure she wants us to be making this stuff yeah. up. And so when she shouted out the name, the look on her face, you could just see her twitch a little bit, right? Like, didn't see that one coming. And that tends to be the response is, you know, women will try to go, no way, that's not true. And when I say I have my medical records, I <laughs> met my biological family who was responsible for it. They admitted to way more than what they probably even should have. Right. Oh I've met medical professionals who cared for me. I mean, really, what more do you want from me oh my gosh. in order to believe me? And in a world where we do the Me Too and trust women, right. what the heck? Yeah. Why not? Why can you not support me as a fellow woman? Yeah. Yeah, feminist, unless you're a pro-life feminist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so honestly, I feel like, Seth, that is like the great big showdown that we need to have is wow. the pro-life women with the women who identify themselves as being, you know, they say they're pro-choice, but we know they're That's not right. pro-choice. They're yeah. pro-abortion. And you know, I joked to somebody yesterday, I said, I would debate any of them in a public square. And I'm not kidding. That's right. yeah. <laughs> I, That's right. I would show up for that yeah. on any given yeah, day. Yeah, light in the dark. Yeah, yeah. Going full steam. And you know what's so important about that too is not just it's not just important in and of itself because abortion survivors are valuable human beings and they deserve a voice, but it's also very important because it presents a very real ideological challenge mm-hmm. to the abortion industry. And you probably know what I mean by this, but for our listeners, if you don't understand what I mean, this is why what they are doing is so important beyond just vouching and speaking and giving a voice to abortion survivors what it actually means for the pro-life movement. Because if they are willing to look you in the face and say, okay, I will give some ground. Mm -hmm. I'm human enough to say that you have value and that that means you have value in the womb too. Mm -hmm. If Melissa and other abortion survivors have value in the womb, then why doesn't every other child? Is there, is, is this some strange world in which you only have value if you survived an abortion? So if you survived an abortion, then pro-choice moderates will give some ground and say, okay, you have value in the womb, but not the rest of unborn children. That makes no sense to anyone in any world. And so th- what they're doing is so important because it poses a challenge to the entire abortion ideology in the first place. 
um, and that's so important. But for the enemies of your life in the Democratic Party who refuse to allow a vote on the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, um, we, I mean, we are seeing the real battle between light and dark, between those who actually hate unborn children and would deny your right to live, and those of us saying, no, you have a right to live. Did you see that uh, congressional hearing where Busy Phillips was there last year? Did you see that yes, one? Yes, I did. Yeah, well, and that was an interesting showdown, right, where she was asked, because she went on that whole bent, right, of body. Yeah. I had the right to bodily autonomy when I had my abortions. And yes, my heart hurts for her because obviously she is a broken woman. But she put herself on that platform. And when you put yourself on the platform, you have to be prepared for what's going to come from it. That's right. But she was asked that question. So when does the right to a woman like Melissa, when does her right to bodily autonomy begin? And you could see her going, uh, 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 and she couldn't answer the question. That's right. And what else happened at that hearing was so fascinating because the other women, there were six pro-abortion witnesses and two of us as pro-life witnesses, both women, Hmm. they kept wanting to come back to me during their own. And I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, don't do that. (laughs) And But they kept saying, what happened to her was illegal. We want to talk about what happened to her. What happened to her is illegal. Perfectly legal. Isn't that what y'all want? Isn't that what you're here supporting today? But when faced with me, the Mm. argument then is we're not talking about like her, like what happened to her. That's (laughs) bad. Yeah. Well, if what happened to me was bad, then what's happening to every other child is bad. The difference is you have to face me. That's right. And then the argument then gets really funny, right? Because people go, well, Mm. oh, you're so successful, Melissa. Isn't that great that you turned out so well? But, but. But what? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, that is such a dark and depraved approach to humanity. Yeah, so um, because you have to face me, suddenly the argument is a little bit right. different. That's right. And, and I mean, this goes to show that, I mean, we know that these people are spineless cowards who, who are actually enemies of human equality. And when confronted with an abortion survivor who they have to admit on some level has value. And if they had value when they were failed to be killed and they had value in the womb and they had value from the moment that they were a woman, from the moment they were a human being. And their response so often is to say that it's a lie. And that's what the woman told you at the March for Life. And isn't that what all the Democrat senators have been saying who refuse to pass the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act? We've all listened to the Republican arguments for the for the bill, of course, put together by Ben Sass. And we've heard what they said, haven't we? They yeah. said that's a Republican talking point. Those don't happen. They have literally all said this regarding third trimester abortions or born alive babies. They say it doesn't happen. And when I was reading up on that bill and the failure of these um, of these radical pro-abortion Democrats to allow it to pass, I saw a figure that is an estimate of around 43, 44,000 abortion survivors in America. But I have no sense of whether that number is accurate or not. So how many abortion survivors roughly do you know there to be in America? And then how many have now joined your network? So we have over 300 in our network. And that are wow. that is just the number who have given us their identifying information surrounding sure. the abortion. A lot of people will send me a note and say, I survived an abortion too. And then I say, hey, listen, I'd love to know more about you. And you know, they don't they don't touch base again. So, yeah. you know, even within the network, we probably have 150 people that would be pending that we just don't have details about. Wow. So, you know, we've seen that number. And actually that number came from Christina Dunnigan, 
And I had put that out years ago. She did the math based on CDC data mm-hmm. on the failure rates of late-term abortions only. Wow. Not right. chemical abortions, not earlier right. in pregnancy, you know, not abortion pill reversal. Right. So now I know that number has got to be getting higher and higher and higher. So, wow. yeah, that was based on real data. Wow. And what I keep telling the legislators is, you know what? You keep trying to tell us this isn't happening but you have no data, right? We only have eight states <laughs> right, right. in the U.S. that put out data. And in those eight states, the numbers are staggering, that's even right. in eight states alone. And we know that's, again, underreported, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when their that's hands right. are tied and they're having to report it. But, yeah. yeah, if it's not a problem, then prove me wrong. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Seriously, go ahead. I would love to be proved wrong. Right. But and, I know and, if it's a, and if it's not happening... And it's all completely a manufactured pro-life Republican talking point. Then what do you have to lose? Right. Why would you not start to ensure that if there's a chance that there might be abortion survivors, that at least we have legislation? Yeah. Wouldn't you be like, yeah, logical step then. Yeah. Let's track the data. And I'm good. But infanticide is already illegal. Right. Tell that to Kermit Gosnell. Tell that to Jill Stanton. Tell that to those who have come face to face with the children who were disposed of or killed after they were born alive, and it was never reported. Absolutely. And and this is why, at the end of the day, the pro-abortion movement and the left are not just the enemies of human equality, but are living in a fantasy, in a fantasy where anything that threatens their narrative and, and their ability to pursue sexual libertinism at all costs has to be shut down and has to be silenced. And that's why what Melissa does and what the Abortion Survivors Network does is so important because they are no longer silent and you're giving a platform to so many that have a voice. Um, well, thanks so much for joining us Thank today. You. Um, you're going to be speaking in a little bit I to am. what? We're going to 3, talk about young people. Yeah, 20,000 youth yesterday, about probably what half a million people at the march yesterday. Wonderful. So Give us a preview of what you'll be talking about in a little bit. Really just some of that background. So the states that do report out the st- statistics on abortion survivors, the CDC data and you know, where we go from here and really just encouraging those students and anybody attending to get involved. We cannot let this just sit, right? The, the Democrats would love that. Hey, let's just pretend like 2019 didn't happen, <laughs> right. that we haven't, you know, blocked this 90 times. <laughs> no, seriously, we cannot let this go. And as we head into the 2020 elections, I think it's more important than ever. So That's just right. really educating people on how to be a part That's of it. That's right. Amen. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Show, yeah. Uh, check out Melissa Oden. Check out our Facebook page. Check out Abortion Survivors Network. All, of course, all on social media. They all have their own individual websites. If you're a student and you're considering speakers to bring to a university campus, to a church event, to a pregnancy resource center, Dalla, which Melissa and I both travel around the country keynoting, consider Melissa's story because it is one of the most powerful stories out there. If this uh, episode encouraged you, which why wouldn't it? Please share it with people. More people need to know the story. Share, hey, share it with your crazy pro-abortion, atheist uncle, your pro-choice friends, the students in your lives, those that know that you love them, but they disagree on the issue so that they'll uh, they'll understand that this is an important thing for them to watch, an important thing for them to consider. If you want to become a sponsor and patron of this show to help us reach more people, expand our production quality and our content, go to patreon.com slash unaborted, patreon.com slash unaborted, become a patron of the show. And that really helps us reach more people with this important message. Also, Scroll down on iTunes podcast, Spotify, YouTube, give us five-star rating and review because pro-abortion people hate Melissa and I, so they troll our content and give us nasty reviews to try to drive down our reach. So go ahead and do that. Share this with someone. Follow Melissa, and we'll be back next week with a whole lot more. I'm Seth Gruber. This is Melissa Odin, and this is Unaborted. Unaborted.